Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Before we begin, here's a reminder that as a valued listener to our podcast, you can get a discount subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com slash POD20 to subscribe and enjoy all the content of the magazine plus audio versions of the stories. Newscientist.com slash POD20 gets you the 20% discount. In my lifetime, I've witnessed a terrible decline in yours. You could and should witness a wonderful recovery. Hello and welcome to a special COP26 themed edition of New Scientist Weekly, where we're going to bring you up to speed on everything you need to know about the crucial climate conference so far. You just heard David Attenborough delivering a message of hope to delegates earlier this week. And today we're going to see what progress we've made towards that wonderful recovery. I'm Penny Sarchet, your co-host in London. And I'm Rowan Hooper, also in London. But this week, we're joined by Graham Lawton in Glasgow. Hello, Graham. Hello from Glasgow. (laughs) We're going to hear from Graham in a minute about all things COP. And we're also going to discuss what's been going on with our reporter, Adam Vaughan. Hi, Adam. Hello. COP26 is quite rightly getting all the headlines this week. And we'll be discussing whether the pledges so far already have the potential to prevent nearly a degree of warming. But we'll also be bringing you a taste of other non-climate change news in this show. We'll be revealing what the first interstellar traveller might be. And we're going to hear about why scientists are modifying living bacteria to then incorporate them into mammal cells. Let's get going with the COP26 news. There's been loads of powerful speeches from delegates, and I just want to play a bit of one. This is Kenyan climate activist Elizabeth Watuti. The children cannot live on words and empty promises. They are waiting for you to act. Please open your hearts and then act. We're going to get into some of the big things that have happened so far. Um, But Graham, first, what's it like there? I mean, just trying to follow it from here has been overwhelming. I mean, trying to follow it on the ground is even harder because it's such a huge conference. There's so many people here, so much going on all the time. So it's kind of simultaneously overwhelming, but also exhilarating. It does feel like history is being made right here, right now. I mean, obviously, it's early days, but uh, so far, so good, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, so to channel Greta Thunberg, do you think it's uh, you're thinking it's more yay, yay, yay than blah, blah, blah at the moment? Yeah, and that's not just my feeling. I've been talking to lots of people and important people that I bump into and asking them how how they think it's going. And thus far, most people have said, yeah, it's better than we expected. For example, I spoke to Fatih Birol. He's the head of the International Energy Agency. And when I asked him how it was going, he said, promising better than expected and gave me a big smile and walked off. Uh, Another big wig I spoke to is Pateri Talas. He's the head of the World Meteorological Organization. Uh, He is by nature an optimist, but he also was kind of grinning from ear to ear and saying things are going really well, better than expected. 
And Penny, how have you found it? You're our news editor and, you know, it's a bit like whiplash, isn't it? Being snapped from one thing to the next. Yeah, with every new announcement, it, it's, it sounds good. Um, what's the follow through? Will it re- yeah. really be good? Uh, but should we still be happy? <laughs> and and um, I think the, the overwhelming thing for me is, is that it seems really clear this time that governments know that they have to deliver something. There have been cops in the past where we've come away with pra- practically nothing. So I've been really heartened by that change in feel. Um, like governments know that they actually have to start cracking this. Citizens do care. And so... It's kind of a mix. We can't be too optimistic. There are, there have been plenty of um, flashy but toothless pledges so far. And we do know that COP26 on its own won't get anywhere near close to solving the whole problem of climate change. But I think like like many others, I'm, I'm really hopeful that this summit will be a much more significant step than some of the previous summits. Okay, let's focus in on methane as the week started with some positive news there, didn't it, Graham? It really did, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I tried to get into the methane announcement, couldn't get in. It was like the, it was like being at a Beyonce gig. It was insane. <laughs> I mean, and then and then Joe Biden kind of walked past, and that was even madder. It was just crazy. Uh, I didn't get in, but we managed to cover it from remotely. From uh, Adam covered it from his desk, hundreds of miles from Glasgow. But the, the headline is that over a hundred countries, including the US, Japan, and Canada, have pledged to make significant cuts in methane emissions within ten years. And that was kind of hailed as game-changing by Joe Biden. And lots of other people have told me that this might be the most significant thing that comes out of this COP. We should point out, of course, methane, um, it's not as important a greenhouse gas as carbon dioxide. We release less of it um, and it doesn't stay in the atmosphere for as long. But it does have a really powerful warming effect. The Global Methane Pledge announced this week in Glasgow commits signatories to reduce their emissions of methane by 30% by 2030 compared to 2020 levels. And um, as part of this, the US government actually published a detailed blueprint of, of how the US plans to meet this particular goal. Yeah, that's right. So past summits have focused on CO2, and that goes right back to the Kyoto Protocol 1992. But this puts the spotlight on short-term climate forces, which are increasingly being seen as, as part of the answer. Uh, if you deal with things like methane, you buy yourself a little bit of time to do the really hard yards of decarbonising up to now, methane is responsible for about a third of all global warming that we've seen so far. Uh, and because it's a short-lived climate force, if you stop putting it into the atmosphere, you can actually see some very rapid effects on temperature. So the 30% pledge, I was talking to someone this morning, if that's achieved, that will essentially hold the temperature increases to where we are right now. And if we go further, you start seeing reductions or at least plateaus. So we're not even at, we're at 1.1 now. If we deal with methane, we can pretty much stay there for quite a long time. Obviously, that doesn't solve the long term problem, carbon dioxide, but it just gives you that little bit of breathing space. Mm, I saw Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, saying that cutting back on methane emissions is one of the most effective things we can do to reduce near term global warming and keep to 1.5 degrees. I mean, that just sounds brilliant really it is it it is and a lot of the methane people are saying hallelujah they've been banging on about this for Mm. ages this is an easy win it's uh, someone said to me it's not low-hanging fruit it's fruit that's sitting on the floor ready to be picked up why have we not done this before (laughs) right let's just introduce some caveats here because it is a voluntary thing isn't it and it doesn't include china india and russia and russia as we know are notorious for having really leaky fossil fuel infrastructure And it also doesn't include Australia, where you've got these major plumes of methane coming from coal mines. 
Yeah, these are all important caveats. But the point is that it's now on the table. It's part of COP. The ambition will only ramp ramp up. And actually, methane mitigation, unlike carbon dioxide mitigation, we have all the technologies at hand to do it. It's really easy to do it. Okay, it's not really easy to do it, but it's it's pretty, it's relatively straightforward to do it. And methane is a valuable commodity. The oil and gas companies want to cream it off and sell it. It's, it's just a huge win-win. And again, the question is, why is it taking so long to get methane on the table? Thanks, Graham. We'll be coming back to Glasgow in a minute. But first, a climate change free interlude. Regular listeners will know that we love tardigrades on this show. These are the microscopic yet charismatic, really yeah. tough little water bear creatures. Yeah. And we're also keen followers of space travel stories. And guess what? This week we get to combine them both. Yes, what joy. Uh, this is this is about a NASA-funded programme aimed towards developing interstellar travel. And this is by means of a spacecraft with a solar sail. So that's when you use a sail, um, and in this case, you shine a powerful laser on the sail and propel the craft at high speeds and much faster than you can get with conventional rockets. Yeah, so the idea is that you can get out of the solar system much more quickly and, and go into stellar, but presumably you have to have quite a small spacecraft for that <laughs> to work. Yeah, they they call them wafer scale spacecraft, um, which tells you what you need to know. Really, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, you need to make everything really as tiny as you can, including the transmission system to send data back to Earth and the supply, a power supply that you have on board. Um, so, are you about to suggest that we uh, stick a tardigrade on one of these uh, wafer spacecraft? Yeah, well, that's what, so. That's what Stephen Lantin at the University of Florida. That's that's his suggestion. And the reasons, of course, is that tardigrades are super resilient to stress, including dehydration and radiation. And we know they can survive in space for at least a short time. And they might already be on the moon because there was this Israeli mission a couple of years ago that crashed on the moon and that was carrying tardigrades. So they might already be up there. So many questions. Um, But I take it this surely must just be a theoretical idea at the moment. Surely there are planetary protection laws about contaminating the solar system and beyond with, with Earth species. We can't just pump it out into space, can we? Yeah, well, I'm not, I don't know what galactic law says about this, but yeah, as you, it is a moot. It's a kind of moot question, though, because we don't have um, a solar sail wafer craft yet. But this is really long term thinking about interstellar travel because it, it is a long way off. But you have to start thinking about it now is, is, is what their aim is. And they like tardigrades because, you know, they go into this extreme hibernation. They can slow their metabolism down and that makes them be able to deal with really adverse conditions. And the researchers say that there might be something we can learn about it um, from tardigrades that might help humans survive interstellar travel. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Back to COP26, and let's bring in Adam here. Adam, you and Rowan are heading up to Glasgow for the second week of the summit, but you've been virtually immersed in all things COP this week. And I wanted to get into the really striking suggestion that came out on Wednesday that the pledges made at the summit so far, if implemented in full, could keep us under two degrees of warming. Yeah, so this is on the face of very good news. Um, I mean, we knew before the conference that all the pledges uh, were going to get us to about 2.7 degrees of warming which is, of course, well off track for the 1.5 degrees that the world is tilting at. Um, but, um, you know, despite that sort of huge gap in the first couple of days or so of the summit, there's been a fairly positive gloss put on prospects for keeping 1.5 degrees alive, which is the stated aim of the host country, the UK. Um, I spoke to several um, scientists um, recently and they, they said they believe that 1.5 does remain within reach, despite, you know, acknowledging it's a huge challenge. Um, one said that, that was Corinne Lecour at um, the University of East Anglia. She said that, you know, it already given efforts an incredible push. But what about that analysis that came out suggesting that these pledges so far have already moved the dial, the temperature dial from 2.7 to 1.9 degrees? Yeah, so that was interesting. That came on on Wednesday. And then on Thursday morning, we've had another one from the International Energy Agency saying 1.8 degrees. So they've beaten them. Wow. <laughs> um, so, um, I mean, these are, you know, these are really interesting, rapid analyses. And the, the, this one, the one you're referring to is by uh, a few Australian academics. And what the problem, what they were doing there, the reason they get to such a low number is they're not counting just the short term plans, which is the sort of meat of the, of Glasgow. Um, those are the ones for about 2030. But they're also assuming that all the long term ones, all the sort of 2050, 2060, 2070 ones, and the net zero ones, they're assuming that those are acted on in the short term. And yeah, of course, the reality is they're probably then at the moment, we don't think they are. So, you know, I was talking to Anne Olhoff at the Technical University of Denmark, and, and she, you know, said, she made that point very clearly, you know, that at the moment, based on what those countries are doing, in the short term, we're thinking of people like Saudi Arabia here, um, Australia, Brazil, so on. Um, go- governments that have committed long-term net zero, that it doesn't line up with what they're doing in the short term. And, and to be fair to the Australian team, they acknowledge that. Yeah. So, OK, it is a super optimistic take if you assume that all the pledges and their, their long-term net zero indications, that they turn into real action. That, that, that's right. It's, it's, it's assuming that countries, you know, are serious about their long term goals rather than just greenwashing. So, you know, but the, the truth is the short term picture is pointing in the opposite direction. So, you know, Ed Miliband, one of the Labour politicians in the UK, he said that, you know, several countries are using their net zero pledges to disguise the fact that they're not doing much in the short term. He, you know, singled out Australia, for example. Other examples would be Russia with its 2061, um, Saudi Arabia, so on. They, they've also got 2061. And, and if you actually look at someone like Climate Action Tracker, which is a non-profit which tracks all these things, that's if you actually look at what country, not if you just set aside for a second all the pledges and look at the policies that countries have in place, i.e. what they're actually doing, you get to more like 
almost three degrees of warming which is obviously not such a not such a pretty picture yeah mm-hmm. so it's about being cautious with those pledges then and, and actually seeing what action is being taken De- definitely I, and I think there's a I think there's a real everyone wants COP26 to be a success right and so I think there's been a real sort of immediate knee-jerk let's say yay you know it's moving the dial I mean it is moving the dial I'm not convinced yet it's moving the dial as much as below two degrees as some of these assessments are saying okay let's talk about India for a bit because Everyone was expecting something big from India because they hadn't submitted their pledge before the conference started and because the Prime Minister Narendra Modi was there. And then he announced that India would be net zero by 2070. Uh, And this was one of the things that gave me a kind of whiplash feeling uh, because, you know, there were sudden loads of different takes on this announcement. Uh, So, Adam, what do you make of it? Well, I mean, the, the interesting thing was like immediately sort of UK political journalists sort of, neat, you know, tweeting that, that this was disappointing because it's 20 years later than the UK and a lot of other high income countries. And yeah, sure, 2070 is later than anyone else has promised, you know, even China and Russia are saying 2060, same with the Saudis. But you've got to remember this is India and the, this is the, the first time it's even a big deal for the Indian government to say that there's an end date here to their, basically their contribution to climate change. Um, right. So that in itself is a really big deal. You've got to remember this is a country of 1.4 billion people and growing, (laughs) you know, their per capita carbon emissions are like tiny compared to a European's or an American's. And this is a country that is, you know, got millions of people without electricity and is still developing. So there's a reason their goal is a lot later than everyone else's. Yeah. And uh, I saw people who were veterans of of the Paris meeting saying that, you know, if they'd been told then in Paris that India would here announce this net zero plan, they would never have believed it. Yeah, that, that's right. And I mean, there was there was expectations that India was maybe going to do something in April for Joe Biden's summit then. Uh, and that it's that somehow they for some reason it got bottled then. But I think, you know, this is the first step from them. And, you know, look, it might come forward, right? You know, Brazil last year said, oh, 2060. And then this year they've already come forward and said it's 2050. So you know, there's no reason that it will stay as 2070. Um, and there were four other steps that Prime Minister Modi announced, weren't there? Um, he also said that 50% of India's energy would be sourced from renewable sources by 2030. And what about the capacity, the renewable capacity, Ad? Yeah, so, I mean, they talked about, so that, that one you just mentioned, this sort of, you know, half of their electricity. So they did. he did use the word energy. Um, everyone I've spoke to seems to think that it's electricity um, yeah. because that seems to align with some modelling that's been done in the past by um, authorities in India. So it looks like it's 50% electricity. Um, but yeah, the, the 500 gigawatts of renewables um, by 2030, that's up from about 134-ish today. So that is a big increase. And, you know, that's like, oh God, how many times the UK grid is, is yeah. a lot, many, many, many times the, the total UK electricity grid, you know. So that that's a big deal. And also the interesting, the, another interesting one, which didn't get a lot of attention, but which is, sort of again symbolically significant as they talked about saving a billion tons of co2 this decade um versus what was expected and again that's the india's never really talked about absolute reductions before it's always talked about things like carbon intensity so you know greening the economy a bit rather than necessarily actually bringing emissions down so again people uh, ngos and others who are at the conference i was speaking to they, they said that was actually quite a big deal too just in, in more symbolic terms rather than like you know saving us from climate change I was wondering, uh, something that has been talked about a lot in the past is is with countries, um, particularly with reference to countries in Africa, there's been this discussion of um, can we get the people who aren't on electricity 
just to skip the fossil fuels and, and go onto a, a clean grid from the beginning. Is, is that the kind of thing we could be looking to see happening in India now because of these pledges? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean you, you know, the, 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 as I mentioned, there are sort of millions of people without electricity. A lot of those are in rural areas and villages. And what we have seen in Africa in recent years is a lot of um, so-called microgrids where they're not, you know, these are places where they're quite maybe remote and don't make economic sense to connect to a national grid in the way we think of as where we get most of our electricity in the UK. And so that is a, play, a role where renewables, you know, are ideally suited and um, you know, obviously it's largely been solar so far, and but I think increasingly we've seen in the last couple of years or so is batteries as well being put in with them. So, you know, if it's a relatively small community, right, of 100 people or so, then that's an ideal solution. And it's probably going to be a lot cheaper for them now than, than something like a diesel um, generator. So, yeah, I think that hopefully that leapfrogging narrative will actually be increasingly be the reality as well, I think, as well as a nice sort of hopeful idea. Friday at COP26 this week, it's Youth Empowerment Day. And on next week's show, we're going to hear directly from some young activists who have travelled to Glasgow from all over the world to make their voices heard. This week, though, we're going to hear from a woman who started her climate activism when she was 15 by organising Earth rallies. And since then, she's campaigned and worked to save the planet. But it's not Greta Thunberg. Haha. See what I did there? <laughs> no, um, it's not Greta. It's Larissa Naylor of the University of Glasgow. And she's Professor of Geomorphology and Environmental Geography. And I spoke with her earlier. Now, Friday is Youth Empowerment Day at COP26. And your story is itself quite empowering, isn't it? Um, can you give us a flavour of it? Yeah, it was funny. I was really excited the three or four days in the run up to COP and I couldn't quite place why. And then I realized that as a 15 year old, I won an essay competition to gain a youth place at what was called Globe 90. And it's the first of a series of conferences that have run every two years in in North America. But it was particularly unique uh, in the sense it was the largest environmental conference of its kind, probably worldwide, but certainly in North America at the time. And this event brought together world leaders, it brought together NGOs, and it brought together indigenous groups. And in doing some archival work this week, I found out that they were partly using it as a stepping stone between the Brundtland Report coming out in 1987 and the Rio Summit in 1992. And I got to hear Gro Harlem Brundtland speak. And as a young woman, that was incredibly inspiring to hear a very internationally important woman yeah, it really kind of catalyzed my interest in the environment. And very shortly thereafter, the, I joined the Environmental Youth Alliance, which was set up in Vancouver. And within a few months, we were organizing the first Youth Earth Rallies, you know, actually helping organize my own event at 15. So I was the same age that Greta Thunberg was when she started her activities, was, was very empowering for me. And that, that led me to uh, get more involved um, so that between the, the, the conference and then the rallies, I then campaigned for uh, old growth logging to be halted uh, in the Kamana Valley on Vancouver Island and also for Indigenous peoples in Sarawak. And as a, as a 15, 16, 17 year old, I was doing candlelight vigils in front of embassies in downtown Vancouver and things like that. But it really inspired me really to want to work to, to help save the planet as part of my raison d'etre, as part of my career. And now that you went to that big environmental meeting in Vancouver, and that was five years before COP1. And now we're at COP26. Did, did you think that kids would still be marching and protesting, you know, all those years later? 
Yeah, I, I was reflecting on that. And, and I have, you know, there's a sort of pang of sadness, really. And I suppose, you know, when I was thinking about this piece, I was thinking, what I really hope is that the next generation, so, you know, my children are 10 and seven, but I hope that the baby's being born today. So the baby's being born in the pandemic. Let's make it really soon. You know, let's make it so when they're 10, they're not marching. You know, I think society really needs to act now and be willing to to let go and to change and transform. I do work at the coast and our boundary with the land and sea is not fixed. It's dynamic. It's changing and we need to change with it. You know, net zero is not enough in terms of sea level rise. So we have to adapt and that requires society to adapt, all of us, from the politicians, the world leaders, through the people in charge of developments, property developers, people who champion for the land, people who who are interested in history and place. Some of that we may have to use virtual reality technologies, capture it, and, and maybe let it go. We need to be really bold and transformative and really think about how we allow ourselves to transform, to live and be resilient in this climate changing world that we're in. I think the great thing about your story is that it shows that, well, it shows one of the options available to children after being a teenage activist. You know, is that one of your messages for young people today? Yes, absolutely. I think certainly with the climate emergency, we need all flavours of people. We need all flavours of of discipline. So I I work a lot in science arts collaborations. We, you know, the arts are a very powerful vehicle for getting some of these messages around some of those behavioural or societal changes or or for for making it really stark. Uh, But we need innovators and inventors. We need really good negotiators and mediators. We need excellent lawyers and we need really creative financial people. We need the whole gamut. So I guess what I'd like for today is, you know, I think today's youth in some ways are luckier than I was. I, I was a little bit more unusual in my day. And I hope now that the youth of today have have more behind them. There's more people, there's more goodwill. And if anything, COVID has shown us our capacity to transform and change how we live very rapidly. So can we take some of that, that good side of COVID and use it to kind of empower ourselves and empower the youth of today to really help us um, and help bring along their parents and grandparents and, and, and people they interact with and, and really hopefully create a climate that so they want to have children and they know their children could be able to grow and live in, in, in an environment that wasn't fraught with fires or fraught with floods or they were having to flee as refugees. Thanks, Larissa. That was Larissa Naylor of the University of Glasgow, who was a kind of proto-Greta in the 1990s. Now it's time for another COP break to talk about some extraordinary work being done to engineer microbes to live inside mammal cells. Yeah, this this is a proper sci-fi alert story, actually. There's a group at Michigan State University who have genetically engineered bacteria to enter and live inside mouse immune cells, where these bacteria then released proteins that altered the behaviour of the cells. And the reason this work is so fascinating and far-reaching, I think, is that it's a first step towards creating kind of artificial endosymbionts that could live inside some human body cells and then maybe do everything from like guiding the regeneration of damaged tissues to treating cancer. Yeah, and you say it's like science fiction, but this really was fanciful stuff just a few years ago. Um, But the sort of engineering of organisms that is becoming possible now makes this actually uh, potentially an achievable thing. 
we know how important endosymbionts are. Um, so just to be clear, we're not talking about the microbiome here, which is when we have microbes living inside the spaces in us or on top of the surface of organs or our skin. Right. What we're talking about this time is cells that are actually living inside animal and plant cells. So yeah. As a general sort of rule of thumb, animal and plant cells are about 10 times the size of, of a microbe of a bacterial cell. So you can actually fit one inside the other. This, of course, has happened a few times in evolution. So the most famous examples are our own mitochondria. Um, originally were free living bacteria, but they now help us harvest energy. And chloroplasts too, which plants have that help them photosynthesize were once free living. Yeah, and they evolved then to live permanently inside the cells. So what this team now have done is get a normal bacterium called Bacillus subtilis and engineered it to produce mammalian proteins that alter the activity of genes and then able to control what mammalian cells do. And the way they've smuggled these bacteria into the mouse cells is really clever and possibly mimics what happens in evolution. They've exploited a trick that some animal cells do when they engulf bacteria via a process called phagocytosis. Um, so when this happens, normally the engulfed bacteria, they're trapped in a membrane bound sac within the cell and then they're digested as a defense mechanism. But the team have engineered their bacteria to break out of these sacs and avoid destruction. Yeah, and they've shown that the engineered bacteria then produce mammalian proteins, which alter the behaviour of the mouse cells. So the bacteria still can't live in harmony with their new hosts. And that, that's the big thing they have to figure out next. Yeah, that, that's a long way to go. Yeah. And as one of the scientists we spoke to said, the regulatory hurdles and ethical challenges are probably even greater than the technical ones. But you can imagine some of the things you could achieve, perhaps. So in agriculture, for example, you could give plants the ability to fix their own nitrogen, which would be amazing. Then we wouldn't have to use industrial fertilizer. Yeah. Um, and another super intriguing thing they're looking at is giving mammalian cells the ability to photosynthesize. Uh, that's amazing. amazing. It's like yeah. having a plant-based diet, but without the diet. <laughs> uh, incredible stuff. We'll post a link to this story in our show notes. Let's talk about deforestation, as this is another positive thing that we've had so far, isn't it? Yeah, so this was the Glasgow Leaders Declaration on Forests and Land Use, issued on the 2nd of November by over 100 countries plus the European Union. Basically, this is countries representing 85% of the world's forests committing to ending deforestation within nine years. Well, so this is great news, isn't it? Um, and I saw, by the way, Yedvinda Mali, the planetary ecologist who we had on the other week reviewing June with me. Um, he said it was a Paris moment for forests. I think I think it is a big, a really big deal. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure if I go quite as far as Yedvinda, but you know, it's um, as I speak to I spoke to Frances Seymour at the World Resources Institute in the US, and you know, she's very simply put it, you know, we cannot reach climate goals if we don't keep trees standing. Right. Uh, and um, you know the the declaration is part was part of a whole package of stuff on forests. Um, there was fourteen billion quid of new funding over five years to combat forest loss. Um, you know that's not insignificant. It's not as much as some assessments say we're going to need if we're going to properly protect and restore forests. Um, that money is coming from a mixture of public and private sources, including um, interesting Jeff Bezos's uh, Earth Fund amongst others. So he got quite a lot of kudos for that. Um, I mean, it's small change, right, in, in compared to his wealth, but, you know, nonetheless. Um, and there was a bunch of, as well, um, it's not very exciting, but actually important, uh, we're speaking to some financial types, and they were saying that the 
a separate announcement around a bunch of financial institutions that manage trillions in assets saying they'll no longer invest in activities linked to deforestation. That They said that was quite important in terms of supply chains. And I think we'll see more of that with countries like blocks like the EU, other companies saying, look, we can't be associated with this anyway. I think that's going to be interesting as well. But you, you, I think the one thing to remember about all of this is we've been here before. You know, we, you know, the 2030 pledge to end deforestation is literally the same pledge that a smaller group of countries made in 2014. And that had an interim target of halving deforestation by 2020. And we missed that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's worth remembering, you know, that pledges is one thing and delivery is another. Yeah. So that was the New York Declaration on Forests. And um, so does this does this one have more teeth than New York? Does Glasgow have more teeth in it, in its bite <laughs> than New York? I, I'm not sure it's got better dentistry, but um, <laughs> it does have um, it's, it, it's it's again voluntary. Right. There's not going to be like sanctions or fines or mm. anything like that. It'll be the usual thing. It's all based all this stuff is based on peer pressure and embarrassment, right, on the international yeah. stage. That's how one notable difference is that this is a much bigger group of countries. And importantly, last time Brazil was missing. And as we know, you know, under Bolsonaro's presidency, um, we, we had pre, pre that we had actually seen deforestation rates going down. Um, unfortunately, they've gone back up under him. So that is important that they've signed on. You can view that one of two ways as to whether they're serious about meeting it. Mm, I mean, the Amazon is just so essential, isn't it? Do, do we believe Brazil will keep this pledge? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's really hard. A few people I spoke to felt that it was just, again, the sort of equivalent of the net zero pledges that some other countries are doing on carbon emissions. It's like just cover for look, saying that you're doing something good while you continue doing your unpleasant stuff. Um, and it's not, there's no sign um, looking at the deforestation figures from the Brazilian Space Agency for this year that you know, deforestation slowing there. Um, and you'd think that someone who'd come to a conference to announce it might have done a little bit in advance. So I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit sceptical, but it's re- it's good to see them as a signatory. Finally, Adam, are you feeling more blah, blah, blah about this or yay, yay, yay at the moment? <laughs> I can't believe you said blah, blah, blah. Sorry. <laughs> if, if another world leader or journalist or anyone... I'm a world leader, yeah. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. You are a world leader. <laughs> Um, is it blah blah blah? I think I think it's very easy to, and I mean, I think you know, Greta. To be fair, that's her job to sort of like be very critical, and I think whatever hump comes out of COP is going to not be enough for her, right? Which is fair enough. Um, but I think it's important to say that we have seen some really concrete material announcements: stuff from India, stuff on deforestation, stuff on methane, and a bunch of other, you know, national climate plans and other some smaller deals, which you know, in themselves clearly no they don't put us back on track for 1.5 degree world they're not going to save us in themselves but they are sort of chipping away at, at, the, at the problem so i think there has been some concrete progress this week that's all for our cop 26 special this week thanks to our guests graham norton in glasgow and adam vaughan and thank you for listening for more on cop 26 sign up for new scientists free daily roundup featuring the latest news plus expert insight and wit from the new scientist team to sign up for the newsletter, visit newscientist.com slash sign dash up slash COP26. We'll also add a sign up link to our show notes. I'm reporting next week from Glasgow with Adam and we've got lots of special guests lined up. So please do join us then and do spread the word about our podcast. And remember that discount subscription to New Scientist you can get at newscientist.com slash pod20. Bye for now. See you next week. And we're going to end as we started with David Attenborough.
We must fix our sights on keeping one and a half degrees within reach. It comes down to this. The people alive now are the generation to come. We'll look at this conference and consider one thing. Did that number stop rising and start to drop as a result of commitments made here? This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 